Hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And today we'll be looking at verses 1 to 17. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 17. If you have ever attempted to take a child on a road trip, there is a question that you will inevitably hear at some point. Some of you know where I'm going. Are we there yet? Have you heard that question? Are we there yet? And maybe you'll hear it multiple times. And it's hard to answer because, of course, children don't quite understand time. Sometimes they can't read a clock. They don't have a a sense for how long is an hour. It's a hard question to answer. But you will hear the question, are we there yet? Why is it that you can count on hearing that question asked? Well, there are at least two reasons. One is that our human nature has a tendency to underestimate how much time and effort it takes to get where we want to go, to accomplish what we want to accomplish. Some of us, of course, are more realistic than others, but for all of us, we tend to underestimate. We tend to not count the cost. We tend to think it will be easier than it really is. That's in all of us. The second reason is that we all crave immediate gratification. When we know what we want, when do we want it? Now. (laughs) Or even better, yesterday. (laughs) When we know what we want, we want it, and we want it now. This is in all of us. And so this tendency to underestimate how long it takes, how much effort it's going to take to accomplish something, we see that in, in kids, and we see this desire for immediate gratification in kids. We see them in especially sharp belief in our younger years, but those tendencies never totally leave us, do they? As we mature, we, we hopefully become a little more realistic. We learn the value of patience. But within all of us, in our human nature, we're wondering, are we there yet? Why hasn't this happened? Why didn't that plan pan out? Are we still waiting for this answer? What now? Are we there yet? And this is the same dynamic that's going on with these first century Christians to whom the letter to the Hebrews is addressed. There are Christians, and they're in effect asking the question, are we there yet? We're convinced Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. They've given their lives. They've devoted their lives. They've put it all on the line for Jesus. Some of them have had their property confiscated, stolen from them by the governing authorities. Some of them have been put in prison. Some of them have been cut off and ostracized and boycotted by their neighbors. They've been kicked out of the synagogue. They put it all on the line for Jesus. But where is Jesus? Where is this reward? Why are we continuing to suffer? How long do we have to wait? Are we there yet? 
And it is in that context that the writer gives this long list of those who have persevered by faith in Hebrews 11. To tell them and to tell us now, you aren't the first ones to suffer for Jesus. You aren't the first ones who have had to endure in faith. Hardship and suffering is nothing new for the people of God. Just read your Bible. And moving into chapter 12, he says that the Christian life is not a sprint, it is a marathon. And he says we must run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on who? Jesus. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We must persevere. But even when we hear that, we know that we still grow weary, we lose heart, we wonder, are we there yet? This afflicts us as individuals. It can afflict the church. Where do we go from here? What do we do next? Why isn't this panning out? I want this plan to work out now on my schedule, on our schedule. What do we do now? So how do we persevere? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. How do we do this? This is the instruction we need. This is why we need to learn. This is why we need God's discipline in the midst of hardship and adversity. So let's read the first four verses here in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Pausing there. The first thing to see here in learning how we are to persevere when we're wondering, are we there yet? Is to consider the example of Jesus. Consider the example of Jesus. And what do we learn from the example of Jesus? Well, he's said a few things about this earlier in the letter. For example, in Hebrews 2, verse 10, he says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Perfect through what he suffered. And you may ask, why would Jesus need to be perfected? Isn't Jesus already righteous? Well, remember, Jesus is one person, but he has a divine nature and a human nature. And his divine nature, yes, is perfect. It cannot be improved upon. But his human nature learned obedience, suffered as we suffer. He earned the righteousness that we cannot achieve for ourselves. He earned it 
with his own flesh and blood. He became perfect. He became the source of salvation for all those who believe. We see something similar in Hebrews 5, beginning at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So he's been making this point all along, that Jesus, even Jesus, the Son of God, submitted to God the Father and learned obedience through what he suffered. Even Jesus endured the discipline of his Father. And not only that, he endured the cross. The cross. And it's hard for us to understand the shame of the cross. We know about the pain of the cross. It looks awful if, to, to see it pictured. But the shame. Recall that the whole point of crucifixion is to shame that individual. The whole point is to say, this is what happens to those who defy Caesar and the power of Rome. And how better to shame someone than to strip them naked and expose them. To have insults hurled at them. To be spit upon. To be held in contempt by other people. Oh yes, the shame of the cross. This is what he's pointing to. Jesus endured the shame of the cross. He endured the physical pain of having his hands pierced by nails, having his feet pierced, of having his side pierced by a spear. But even more than the physical pain of the cross is the spiritual pain of bearing the weight of the sins of all those who would trust in him. Bearing my sins. Bearing your sins. The sins of rejection. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he endure it? Why would he put up with this? He didn't deserve this. Look again in verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, the joy of triumph, the joy of defeating death, the joy of being able to declare, where, oh, death is your sting. And he did it for his people. He did it for you, for me, for all those who would trust in him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. He surrendered. He could have summoned legions of angels to deliver him, to help him, but he didn't. He endured it. And God the Father vindicated his sacrifice for the sins of his people and by raising him from the dead. So what does that mean? When we're growing weary, when we're getting impatient, when we wonder if we can go on, are we there yet? Consider the example of Jesus. And consider this. 
if even Jesus had to endure hardship and discipline, why on earth would we expect to be treated any differently? If we claim to be Christians, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, why would we expect to be treated any differently than our Master? As they treated Him, so also they will treat us. And this is why it is so absolutely necessary to count the cost of discipleship. So often the way the gospel is presented to people is just say a prayer, get your ticket to heaven punched. It's free, and salvation is free. It's all by grace through faith alone. But discipleship will cost you everything. If you truly yield your life to Christ, if you truly confess that He is Lord, then you should be expecting the same kinds of hardship and suffering when you put it all on the line for Jesus. When you swim against the stream. When you take a stand for the truth of the gospel. You're going to have conflict. There's going to be opposition. It's going to be hard. Count the cost. This is discipleship. Remember that we're following Jesus. Consider the example of Jesus. Now look at verse 4. In contrasting the example of Jesus and also contrasting the example of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, he compares that and contrasts that with the experience of his audience. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Why does he say that? To put things in perspective. Reminds me of something I often heard from, from coaches in various sports. You complain about some ailment, they say, well, are you bleeding? No? Good. Get back out there. <laughs> if you're not bleeding yet, get back out there. What are you complaining about? Look at the example of those who have suffered and bled and died, those who have gone before us. Consider the example of Jesus. What are you complaining about? Tough it up. You haven't shed any blood yet. That may not be the encouragement we always need, but it's something we need to hear from the Word of God. Toughen up. Consider Jesus. You haven't suffered to that extent yet. Then moving to verses 5 to 11. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son... Do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, 
We have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So the second thing to see here is remember the purpose of discipline. Remember the purpose of discipline. And notice how the word discipline is packaged in the word discipleship. There's no discipleship without discipline. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. To be educated. To be schooled in the ways of Christ. In the ways of holiness. And the way he gets to this point is to say, have you completely forgotten the Word of God? He points them to Scripture, and then he interprets and applies the Scripture. And this is very similar to what we read in Hebrews 2, verse 1, when he says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Remember this. The more deeply you engage with the Word of God, the less likely it will be that you grow weary and lose heart. Why? Because you're going to be reading about the kinds of people we read about in Hebrews 11. And you're going to be reminded, what are my circumstances compared to them? Look at those who have gone before. And conversely, the more you remove yourself from the Word of God, the more you disengage from the Word of God, the less perspective you're going to have. And you're going to think that in your world, what you're facing and your hardships and your difficulties are the biggest thing in this universe. And no one else understands this is the worst. Brothers and sisters, we need the example of God's Word we need to pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away, and we will drift if we don't pay attention. So have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? And he goes on to cite Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12, where we read that we are not to make light of the Lord's discipline. That is, we're not to blow it off. And we're not to lose heart when he rebukes us. We're not to become paralyzed by it. And th this is what typically happens. We do one of these two things, typically, when we're under the Lord's discipline. When hardship comes our way, and we're asking the question, are we there yet? We'll just blow it off. We don't pay attention. We're not asking, Lord, what are you teaching me through this? Lord, how are you using this to make me more like Jesus? We just ignore it. We can figure it out. We're good. We'll go our own way. Or we become paralyzed by it. 
We feel like we're under the wrath of God. And He's punishing us. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I'm cursed. What do I do? We don't pray. We don't seek Him. We don't seek His guidance or His counsel or His leadership. We don't engage Him in His Word as He makes His character and His will known to us. We just become paralyzed. We're stuck. Where do we go? What do we do? So that's putting in the negative. That's what we're not to do. To put it positively, what are we to do? We're to see God's discipline as a sign of his fatherly love for his redeemed children. This is a sign of his love. This is how we know he lays claim to us. This is what we read in Revelation 3 when the risen Jesus rebukes the lukewarm church of Laodicea. This is Revelation 3, verse 19. Jesus says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. It's a sign of God's love. And he sets up this lesser to the greater argument. He says, didn't we receive discipline from our earthly fathers? Can't we identify with that? And don't we believe that we should respect the authority of our earthly fathers and their discipline? And don't we know that fatherly discipline of the sort that we encounter in this world is imperfect and tainted by sin? And the fathers we know tend to fluctuate between being too severe and too lax. Too severe, too lax. This is the nature of human fathers because human fathers are tainted by sin. But if we respect that authority, as imperfect as it is, how much more should we show respect and submit to the discipline of our heavenly Father, the Father of spirits who gives spiritual life to his redeemed children? And if you're not undergoing this discipline, then you are illegitimate. Then you do not belong to him. You aren't his. So watch out for this. Watch out for this. See it as a sign of his love for you. But how do we... Why would... If, if, and, and the world doesn't understand this. If you love somebody, then you give them what, you, what they want. That's typically how the world interprets love. But here's our situation. We all underestimate how unlike Jesus we truly are. We all underestimate how unlike Jesus we truly are. To put it another way, we aren't as holy as we think we are. Can you affirm that? We aren't as holy as we think we are. Therefore, we need discipline, we need schooling, we need ed education. We need correction. We need guidance. We need him to say no to this. Yes to that. Not this way. That way. We need this. I need this. And this is how he sanctifies us as he fills us with the Holy Spirit and he transforms us and we start to bear spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and we start to have more 
patience and self-control. We start to be more holy. We start to sound more like Jesus and live more like Jesus. And other people start to see Jesus in us. We're more salty in the best sense of that word. More purifying. We have more light that radiates from us. That's why we need this discipline. That's how we can see this as an expression of his love. When we, when we are willing to admit, I'm not Jesus. I haven't arrived yet. And I won't arrive until I reach glory. Until I reach my heavenly home. And until then, I need discipline. We need discipline. But be encouraged. Look at verse 10. They, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good. Why? In order that we may share in his holiness. Remember, God's discipline is always aimed at your good. Always. Without exception. If you belong to him, if you're trusting in the blood of Christ and only the blood of Christ to atone for your sins, if you're living by faith, if you're seeking to persevere through hardship and you're enduring it as discipline, remember, this discipline is for your good to make you more holy. So we need to be continually asking the question, Lord, what are you teaching me through this? How do you want me to be more like Jesus as a result of this hardship? But as he acknowledges, sometimes this is painful, maybe even excruciatingly painful. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. It hurts. Just ask any college student going through the pressures of exam week. It's painful, but it's for a good purpose. To learn, to be educated. And we need this as Christians. So remember, when you're undergoing the, the, the fires and the pain of hardship, don't wilt under that. Welcome God's good discipline through those hardships. See it as an opportunity to be more like Jesus. Whether you're enduring this as an individual or as a church, we as a church need to be made more holy because we're not there yet, are we? We're not there yet. We need this discipline. Expect it to be painful, but only temporarily. Remember that in time, in God's time, it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it, who have been educated by it. It will yield a harvest 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, all to the glory of God. When people are shaped and molded by this refining work in their hearts. We need this. Oh, we desperately need this. So remember the purpose of discipline. It's not to hurt you. It's to sanctify you. It's to make you more holy. But praise God, we don't run this race alone. We don't run this race alone. And the following instructions pertain to how we run together. How we together fix our eyes on Jesus. 
the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So picking up our reading at verse 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. The third thing is this. Run with perseverance together. Run with perseverance together. All of this, all of the, the you language here, it's plural. Y'all, this is what y'all are to do together. And watch out. Someone who claims to be a Christian but has no active involvement in a local church, they are in grave spiritual danger. And they may not be saved at all. Because those who are truly saved will run with perseverance together. Together. They know they can't do this alone and God didn't mean for them to do it alone. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. If you love Christ, you're going to love His church. You're going to join His church. You're going to serve His church. You're going to share your spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. You can't do that alone. You can't fulfill any of these commands alone. We need one another. Amen? We need one another. And the first instruction here is just toughen up. He's drawing from biblical language here in verses 12 to 13. Strengthen your feeble arms. Look up. Look up. Toughen up. No, we're not there yet. We've got to keep going. But we're going to go together. And how are we going to get there together? We're going to make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Isn't this what we need with one another? Peace and holiness. Peace and holiness. Mutual compassion and kindness. Abounding love for one another. And holiness. Righteous living together and collectively seeking to do God's will as He has made His will known through His Word. We do it together. And we watch out for one another as we see in verse 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. You need to be looking out for me. I need to be looking out for you. We're all like sheep. And we tend to wander. And we need to be watching out for those who are wandering and tell them the right path to come. The way back home. This is very simple. As I say, if someone is not actively engaged in a local church, they are in grave spiritual danger. That's as plain as I know how to make it. And that means when you see someone who claims to be a Christian, maybe someone who is a member of the church, 
and they're not here and they're missing regularly, you better reach out to them. Don't ask the pastor, do you know what's going on with so-and-so? You go talk to that brother or sister. You pray for that brother or sister. We have a responsibility to one another. This is how we run with perseverance together. We don't want anyone here to fall short of the grace of God. We don't want anyone to fall behind. We don't want anyone to be lagging. And we need to be on guard. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. What is a bitter root? Well, this is biblical language coming from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, in verse 18. Listen to these words. Make sure that there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today, whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. When such a person hears the words of this oath, and they invoke a blessing on themselves, thinking, I will be safe, even though I persist in going my own way. They will bring disaster on the watered land, as well as the dry. What is a bitter root? Well, you think about a root. I have some in my own yard, and they suck the water from my grass. It causes the grass to not grow so well in my yard. But I don't see them until they start emerging above the surface. But they've been there all along. They've been affecting what's on the surface all along. So also, this bitter root is a way of thinking that can seep underneath the church, so to speak. And it leads people to start thinking that maybe we're smarter than the Bible. Maybe we don't need to submit to God's word, or at least not all of it. Maybe what we need to do is employ the world's wisdom to run the Lord's church. Maybe what we need is our own plan, our own wisdom. Maybe we can go our own way. And it's poisonous, and it grows. And we've got to root it out before it affects the whole. This is a root of bitterness. We have to be on guard against false teaching, and against false living. Because we'll all be affected by it. This is how we persevere together. We've got to be vigilant. We can't be complacent. We can't be passive. And then he talks about sexual immorality, and he uses the example of Esau. This is very important. What do we know about Esau? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 25, you'll read the story of Jacob and Esau, these sons of the patriarch Isaac. And you'll recall that Esau was the older son, but just barely. He was the older son. And as the older son, what was he entitled to inherit? The wealth of the father. It's his by virtue of his birth. But one day... Esau had been out hunting, and he's hungry. He comes in, and he sees his brother Jacob cooking some stew. He says, give me some of that. I'm starving. 
And what does Jacob say? Well, Jacob is a, is a tricky, crafty sort of fellow, and he says, okay, I'll give you some stew if you'll give me your birthright. If you'll allow me to stand in place of the older son. And what does Esau say? What do I care about my inheritance? I'm starving. Remember the question from the child in the car, are we there yet? Remember that underestimating how long it's going to take, how hard it's going to be. Remember that desire for immediate gratification? Behold all of that in Esau. He's driven by his appetites. His belly is his God. And he says, give that stew to me now. And Jacob does. And we're told in Genesis 25 that in this way, Esau despised his inheritance. He despised his inheritance. Why? Because he didn't want to wait. He knew what he wanted, and he wanted it now. Never mind the inheritance. He's got no time to persevere. Beware of this way of thinking. Beware of letting your appetites drive your life and your decision-making. This is why he mentions sexual immorality at this point in the letter. This is being governed by your senses. This is being governed by your appetite. This is letting your belly be your God. Don't do that. We're not there yet. We can't fall short. We can't stop now. We've got to keep going. We've got to run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Want to complain still? Why are you bleeding? No? Good. Get back out there. Toughen up. Keep going. We're not there yet. There's more discipline to come, more educating to come, more holiness required. So it comes down to this. For us as individuals and for us as a church, are we going to wilt in the face of hardship? Are we going to wring our hands with worry and doubt and fear? God, what are you doing? Or are we going to say, Lord, we welcome your discipline, even when it hurts, because we believe your discipline is for our good and for your glory. And you're going to make us more holy. And so we're not going to stop now. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep praying. We're going to keep reading his word. We're going to say, Lord, shape me, mold me, teach me, make me more like Jesus. Lead me and guide me. Lead and guide us as a church. We're nothing apart from you. Lord, we need you. We know we're not there yet, and we gladly confess it. Is that you today? Are you ready to submit to the discipline of the Lord for your good and for his glory? May it be so. As we go to him in prayer now. Dear Lord, we confess that we are by nature impatient people. 
by nature. We're governed by our bellies. We're governed by what looks good in our own eyes. We're directed by what seems desirable in our hearts. But Lord, we don't want to settle for that today. And we thank you for the correction of your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us today of that waywardness, of that fallenness, of that sinfulness within us. And that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us, would wake us up. That your Holy Spirit would make level paths, straight paths for our feet. And we pray, Lord, that if we have never surrendered to Jesus as Lord, if we have never said that Jesus and only Jesus can save us, Lord, may we be convicted, may we repent and trust in Christ today. And for all of us, Lord, help us to persevere in faith. May we not be those who shirk back and fall away, who fall short of your grace, but may we be among those who persevere and are saved and who enjoy the inheritance that you have prepared for your redeemed children in glory in heaven where you are, Lord. May we long for that day. And as we long for that day, may we strive for more peace and more holiness. May we watch out for one another. And may we yield our lives to your leading. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.